What's up, Fuel Her Awesome Sisters? Hey, most days at the end of the day, I sit down with my boys and I ask them what their high and low of the day was. I want to know the best part of their day and the low point. Then they ask this to me, and inevitably, my high of the day tends to be a conversation I had with another human being who shared their experience, and their insight with me. It is such a gift to be able to talk to others and just hear their journey. And so over the next few weeks, I want to bring that to you. I will be interviewing a series of humans who are amazing and have channeled their experience, positive or negative, into serving this world and making it a better place. So I'm really excited for you to hear that. Today, I have a clinical counselor who specializes in sports psychology, and she's going to be talking about her own experience with food and the language we use around food and how this impacts our own experience with food, the message it's sending to the future generation. It's something that I know is going to make you think and empower your food journey. Here's a little sneak peek of what's in store. Yeah, like sometimes when people get super restrictive into things, a question that I like to ask is like, when you, you know, when you were 10 years old, where was your favorite restaurant to go? Mm. Or where was, where was something that you enjoyed? And not to suggest that everybody necessarily has a bad relationship with food either. Like mm-hmm. maybe it's just a check-in point for curiosity and uh, appreciation. And that's equally as important and worth, you know, highlighting as well. Welcome to the Fuel Her Awesome Show, friends, where we dig into nutrition deeds that are actually helpful and we learn to be nicer to ourselves. I mean, think about it. Those things you say about your body, would you ever say them to your friend? I don't think so. (laughs) I am so glad you are here. I'm Jess, registered dietitian, juggling mama, work, and wife life amidst all the things. I used to spend an insane amount of energy hating on my body and lost in nutrition, but now I have way too much on my plate. I cannot afford to mistreat my body. And because I have a history of struggling with food, I know I have to be careful with how I approach my health goals. This is why I'm so passionate about empowered eating. Sister, in case you haven't heard it today, you are awesome. And I have resources for you beyond this podcast. Check out JessBrownRD.com and take my body confidence workshop totally free. All right, grab a cup of coffee or two (laughs) and let's fuel your awesome with empowered eating. Well, hey guys, I am so excited to have someone super special on the show today. Her name is Kendra and Kendra and I met through a mutual client and I love the way she speaks about fueling her body and she's really open about her past experience. So after working with her, I just knew I had to bring her on the show. Kendra is a former 1500 meter Canadian national team athlete and the current owner of Strides Counseling and Mental Performance. She works as a registered clinical counselor out of Victoria, BC, Canada. Today, we're going to chat about the role that counseling provides women and some of the common misconceptions surrounding therapy that continue to take place. Kendra loves to be a voice to those topics and effort to normalize the optimization of therapeutic services, not only in support of treating mental health changes, but also as a tool for maintaining and sustaining holistic well-being. And I have to tell you guys, I am a big believer in this. Therapy is one of the best gifts you can give yourself, whether you're struggling with something specifically or it's just an ongoing maintenance tool. I know I have a monthly check-in with a psychologist and it is one of my favorite hours of the month. So I'm excited to pick her brain about that. Furthermore, Kendra has a passion for educating folks like coaches and administration on topics like the female athlete triad, eating disorders, and the power of language. The way language is used to describe food and fueling is something that she has personally found to be very interesting in both her own experience 
personally and professionally, and also in research. While it seems small, Kendra believes language can have a big impact on the female's perception of feeling. Kendra, I am so excited to pick your brain. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. First uh, first podcast. So thanks for having me, Jess. Now, I have to ask you before we talk about some of these professional experiences that you've had as a national team athlete, what was the message that you received about fueling and food? Yeah, great question. Um, I'd say there was, a, there was a bit of a transition for sure. Um, in the beginning in my collegiate years, um, the messages that I received regarding fueling were I wouldn't even say inaccurate, mostly just like in existence. They were pretty limited, um, even from a performance standpoint. And so, but having said that, the environment and the culture within my team, there was certainly a lot of restrictive eating taking place. And I don't know that I recognized it as that so much. I was fortunate enough to not really have any dietary restrictions going uh, growing up and um, have always had a huge sweet tooth. So I arrived on campus pretty naive, I would say, mm-hmm. um, but then quickly was quite immersed in the gluten-free or the dairy-free type uh, <laughs> language and then diets that were going on. So it was all, it was honestly all quite new to me. It was something that wasn't um, even like types of food. Like I remember getting to campus and thinking like I had never had kale in my household mm-hmm. growing up. I didn't really know what it was. And then I just thought it was like, you know, really crusty lettuce at that point, like just different. <laughs> I just feel like culturally, I, I grew up in a very small town and not to suggest that it didn't have access to incredible food, but it was just a, a different transition altogether. So yeah, that was kind of early on. And then I think when I think back on that time too, there wasn't much information or education on it. And my, um, my exercise had significantly increased, but it had also specialized. I was always somebody who played multiple sports growing up. Mm. And, um, so was used to being really active, but not so, um, filtered into like one specific sport. So that was a big change. And, um, yeah, like looking back on it now, it, even that alone was kind of problematic because while it wasn't impacting me negatively at that time, um, at least in standard, you know, like clinical representations of negative impacts to poor fueling. I also don't think it was enhancing my performance or mm. supporting this new load of um, physical exertion that I was completing on a daily and weekly basis. So that's so, interesting. So you said like there was kind of this restrictive environment and something that you didn't, you didn't, I like that. I kind of went in naive. So it's almost like you didn't mm-hmm. have a reference point mm-hmm. and then your physical activity takes off. And that's how common is that with athletes that we see like their freshman year, right? Like we start totally. to increase our output and we just don't really know what the input is yet. We're in a culture that says less is better, regardless right. of like where you're starting from. It's just like constant, like less eat less. That's the message. Yeah. Yeah. Or eat filtered is almost how it was. Mm. was, And so that kind of became a pretty strong point. And then I'd say as I got honestly better at like my performances were improving, then talks about fueling and getting closer to making national teams and that type of thing became more, um, I was just more conscious of it and, um, in a good end, sort of like with a double-edged sword, I I had the luxury, if you'll call it that, of always being like a pretty lean um, person that came from a really athletic background. So I I still didn't, I wouldn't say that I continued or that I started engaging in restricting behaviors still within those like year three to five of of university. 
um, but definitely was much more, well, actually, maybe the jury's out there, um, was definitely much more aware of fueling, but still didn't really feel like I had that education until I was mm -hmm. starting to go away on some of these national team camps. And then, you know, we, suddenly a sport physiologist was involved and body compositions were involved. And so it became more conscious, but I would not say the relationship was um, an educated one moving forward. So as I inevitably started increasing mileage, it wasn't so much that I cut out gluten or I cut out dairy, but I don't think I was fueling. I know that I wasn't fueling to compensate for that increased exercise and inevitably, uh, you know, stress, fr st stress fractures started happening and mm. injuries were taking place and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I, the lack of education, purely the lack of existence of it, I would say was play played a really big role. Um, and definitely the culture I became more aware of the restrictive nature of it, but in my own kind of naive mind at that, because I was still, you know, eating bagels every morning for breakfast and having, you know, as much kind of sugar as I wanted within reason, I'd say the only changes that were happening in my diet were like, oh, you know, you, you could be low in iron. So try and make sure that you're eating more red meat, but it wasn't as though I was cutting things out. So in my mind at the time, I didn't have a, a troubled relationship with mm. food. I just wasn't eating enough. Like the quantity there was not enough. Yeah. The lack of education is so huge. And I think you hit on something so interesting. How often do we like give people body composition or say, Hey, we tell our kids like, oh, you're above the target growth curve of what you should be on, but there's no nutrition education that comes with that. So we're left to like our own resources, which, you know, there might not be any, or mm -hmm. it might be the underlying messages that we get. I love what you said, the eat filtered. I think that's a big message right now, right. like gluten-free, dairy-free, like, and again, like not that they're wrong necessarily, but we have no education on how to apply mm -hmm. those to ourselves. And it sounds like it was kind of that perfect storm. And then you had some of the injuries and side effects of malnutrition that popped up and maybe not even knowing that was because of malnutrition. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's funny that you say like the, not knowing what, what those things were. And I, I was just made me think of that. There's a, I think it was like a Jimmy Fallon thing where they go around asking people like, Hey, do you eat gluten? And they're like, yes. no, no, I'm gluten-free. And then they ask them like, so what is gluten? And like, nobody can answer yes. what it is exactly. <laughs> I've totally um, seen that. It's Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah. But it just, it speaks to how strong that cultural and environmental yes. um, pushes and that influence that's there. So definitely. And even like with the body compositions like I think there is a place in them within sport and I can understand to some reason why they are put in at you know a national team level I know there's been a lot of challenges with um, NCAA schools and the utility of them and that there's a lot of argument rightfully so that's suggesting that you know they're they're being used inappropriately and mm -hmm. and causing more harm than good but even just going back to that understanding point, like I can remember having my first one done and seeing all these graphs and spreadsheets and our sport physiologist who's, you know, an incredibly resourced and um, Trent Stellingworth, uh, an informative person. But yeah, I can remember the first time I had one just feeling like really overwhelmed and intimidated by mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. and like trying not to, I don't know, arrive in our conversation like I basically just didn't want to look dumb. And so I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Hemoglobin. Right. Right. And like, I had no idea what, what <laughs> he's talking you? about right? or, like, you know, like, yeah. yeah. So 
if I didn't have basic um, kind of education on not just the necessity of adequate fueling, but um, the enhancement of performance there. Like, mm-hmm. why would I know about all of these different spreadsheets and things? So I look back now and have a bit more compassion for that younger self, but definitely mm-hmm. at the time it was just, you know, you're, you're new to a national team program. You're the shininess of it all is, is really right. Like front and center. And um, you're just trying to fit in and uh, mm-hmm. kind of get by and yeah. So uh, it sounds like, I, and I love that you said you have compassion for yourself because, right, like why would you know these things? I mean, mm-hmm. educating people on quality nutrition and then taking it farther, like linking nutrition to performance and the requirements and responsibility comes that comes with that is not a typical part of the process, right? You know, we have a coach, but we don't have dietitians on a lot of these yeah. um, and a lot of these teams. So I'm just kind of curious you know, what about your experience there inspired you to pursue a career in counseling and psychology and serve this population that, you know, it sounds like you were right. Like you were looking for some of these things. So just how did you get Mm -hmm. to where you are today? Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, Thanks. That's a great question. And I'll try and kind of condense the answer, but ultimately like my passion for um, pursuing the career that I did came from, uh, personal experience and, and significant burnout in, um, injury, like I had torn my Achilles and had spent multiple years trying to kind of come back from it. And I'm sure fueling played a bigger role than I gave it credit for at the time, but that was definitely a part of, um, my experience there. And so I, I just, I honestly got to a point where even physically, as I started to improve by the time that improvement was occurring, uh, and everyone around me was sort of like, oh, you like so pumped for you, you can finally run it. It'd been a, a year and a half of just spending endless hours in a dive tank, like in the pool, water running mm. and on the bike. And I just really came to the realization that, yes, I'm physically improving, but like my love for this is no longer there. Like I just didn't have the joy that running had previously brought me. And and I I just wasn't willing to do it. And I think I had a lot of guilt initially about feeling like, oh, you're quitting or you're, you know, like you're giving up now that I had a lot of guilt, definitely for all the support from my coach win and, and physios and, you know, support staff, um, to get me back up and moving. And then the irony was like, once I finally was, it was the clarity that I needed that like, I actually just don't, I don't have it in me anymore. Mm. Um, and, but I knew that I could never fully remove myself from sport. And I had always seen a huge hole in the mental health um, side of sport and knew that that was an area that I would be interested in moving towards. So yeah, it was neat to be able to transition out of sport while having another really significant passion that I could push my energy towards. I think that's such a difficult thing for so many elite athletes is moving away from their elite athlete identity and then having to face the question of what's next. And even being asked that question when you're in it can be really threatening because spending time or attention trying to figure that out for investing in your future self can also be kind of conceived culturally as you're not 100% focused on the initial goal, like right here. And so distraction of what graduate your program you want to do or what job you might want to pursue. I I can remember feeling like, yeah, Yeah. as a distraction and not something that was actually an investment in or in an 
like as well as, as opposed to one or the other, like there didn't need to be such a binary divide between am I a professional athlete or am I a professional athlete? Who's also looking to see like, you know, what else I might be interested in. Yeah. I can't imagine that. I mean, I see that a lot. I work with a lot of college aged athletes Mm -hmm. and I see so many, and they're athletes. When I say athlete, I mean, like, if you work out on purpose, you're an athlete. That's how yeah, 100%. I, yeah, that's how I define them. And a lot of these athletes are people who came from like a high school setting where they were really involved in sports and then maybe didn't go on to the collegiate mm-hmm. level. And that's when we start to see like a worked relationship with food start to develop. Right. I know like that was my personal experience as I was a soccer player. I was planning on going to play D1 schooling and I blew out my ACL and there mm. was just no bouncing back. And, you know, I didn't have a heart for it anymore. Like, to be honest with you, it yeah. was time. But that transition and that loss of athletic identity was a really rough transition. I cannot imagine that like at the professional level, it has to be tenfold. So it sounds like you really felt that firsthand and saw value in finding an identity in addition to your sport. Mm -hmm. And you're hoping to give that back. Totally. And yeah, I probably got a little bit sidetracked there, but just, I, I really do consider myself quite lucky because I had I not had that out that other outlet of energy and really focused energy, um, I think I would have struggled even further. And so my mm-hmm. kind of feeling like I'm floating, not really knowing I'm going direction years were like two maybe, and those were really long years of mm-hmm. trying to still keep a foot in the sport, but not really knowing if if I was realistically going to get back into it and where I was going to go. So. Um, yeah, it was such a like blessing to be able to, I didn't think I'd get into this graduate program right away. And then when I did it, it quickly allowed me to bring some acceptance towards, okay, this is, this is where my like passion and focus can be. And it's okay that it's not, you know, equally giving my attention to both, but that I'm somebody who tends to be kind of all in on, on something. And I'm both probably positive and negatively, like I give that 110%. And then once that's completed and I can kind of tie a bow on it, I can move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, like academics were always a a challenge for me and I knew that it would require kind of my hundred percent attention, but anyways, getting sort of more back to that purpose of, you know, why counseling, why, why was I interested in sports psychology and that type of thing? Um, I guess my, my pipe dream, and I knew this, also fortunate to know it going into the um into my masters was that i i knew that there was no mental health support for mm-hmm. student athletes um mm-hmm. within canada and things are starting to improve in the states especially at you know bigger like big 10 schools and higher ncaa ones but within canada within what was previously um the cis and is now called u sports we currently in canada don't have a single full-time, let alone part-time mental health clinician um, in any athletic department across Canada. There are a couple of mental health coordinators and and some definitely improvements in terms of Mm -hmm. um, the necessity of mental health. But I was aware of that and was immediately drawn to like, this is where I want to focus research and and support change. And so that's sort of like my pipe dream long-term. Yeah, yeah. What do you think inhibits students from reaching out for mental health support more? Is it the lack of access to it? Or do you think there's still like a taboo around it where they don't want to actually reach out because they don't want to be 
have a label on them. They don't want to be, you know, called someone with mental health problems. Do you, or do you mm. think it's both? Um, I think, I mean, how much time do you have, Jess? Um, <laughs> there's, there's a number of reasons when, when we're looking at student athletes in particular, I'd say that some of the main, um, reasons that came up within my research were, um, lack of accessibility, as I've just, um, mm-hmm. mentioned, uh, not having the right types of support. So maybe there's a counseling, um, counseling services department on campus, but nobody with background in sport, for example. Mm. Um, so the relatability thing is a big, um, is a big challenge. And then um, schedules, like varsity athletes are, you know, I, I argue that they're basically in doing two majors within their own academic major. And then as well, mm-hmm. the, the full-time uh, component of, of sport. And so um, often they've got early morning practices, they're in class during the day, and then they've got a, an evening practice and counseling is open like nine to three. So yeah. like that, that accessibility, um, it's the so biggest tough. part of it too, that I, that drives me nuts is not having it in within the athletic department. Cause that's where university students spend, student athletes spend so much of their time. So the idea of having, you know, like your physiotherapy room and also having a mental health room right housed in, I think would be mm-hmm. so huge in terms of visibility and accessibility to that care and normalizing that um, practice. I wonder too, because I'm just thinking of, you know, those of us who are like out of college and still need that support. And it's kind of like the same obstacles that present for women. Mm-hmm. It's maybe it's not a school schedule and athletic uh, commitments that are the obstacle, but now it's kids and jobs and responsibilities. And so like, I think that'd be amazing to fix that there in the athletic world. But then I'm like, how do we fix that in the, the, the outside world, right? Like the working world and how do we get mental health resources more accessible and just in front of people's at the forefront of their mind, because I don't think that's a problem that goes away. Mm-hmm. No, you're, you're totally right. And um, it's tough too, because, you know, as a human, that's also, uh, you know, I want to be an example of what I'm supporting my clients with. So mm-hmm. I need my own boundaries and, and, and time off and things like that. But one of the ways that I like, that I hope that I'm helping contribute at least in a really small way within my clients is, um, you know, I do tend to work early mornings and then late mm-hmm. evenings to support mm-hmm. people's work schedules. Like, we're not going to exist in a work in a world where people aren't working during working hours. That's awesome. Um, I do think in, in a twisted way, COVID has sort of helped that in that well, there's a lot more going on, like work from home and um, which is allowing people a bit more flexibility. But yeah, mm-hmm. when I look at my busy days, like they're stacked early morning and they're stacked in the evenings um, to support moms, uh, women who, you know, who, women who are working, women who are uh, wanting to pursue social lives or pursue relationships yeah. regardless of, of what that is. Yeah. I think I just have to say, thank you. My psychologist that I meet with, she meets me at seven 30 in the morning. Mm. Um, we have a river that runs through our town. We meet down there. We do walk therapy, but nice. she, you know, she comes out when it's the sun sometimes isn't even up. It's cold and it's my favorite hour of the month. Yeah. One of them. Yeah. So I just have to say like, I am grateful to her that she works around that and offers that to me. Otherwise I wouldn't be able to do it or I would struggle. Right. And so I know you're making a lot of, you're contributing a lot to other women. So thanks for doing that. Now I want to talk to you a little bit about 
like the language and how we talk about feeling. Cause I'm curious what you've observed and how you see that impacting both athletes and women as they go on to pursue whatever they decide to do after college. Totally. Yeah. It's such an interesting subject and something that I've found has come up in, in a lot of my research and just like continuing education, but also my lived experience. Um, I think that language is so important in the messaging that we put out, um, there's the accessibility to information is so rapid these days with our mm-hmm. smartphones and everything that's put online. And the, yes, the sources of that are, are also important to ensure that you're getting information from the right sources. But um, even on a, like in, in my own experience side of it, I think about it and I can remember having this phrase written on my fridge that said like burn clean fuel. And in Mm -hmm. my head, I was like, Oh, what a positive message that I'm, you know, that I'm continuing to subscribe to. And even I'm like embarrassed to say early education days of my master's when I was in internship, like I'm sure I probably used that phrase in passing and working with athletes before. And now I look at it and I'm like, man, what an oxymoron, you know, you've got burn, which is, synonymous for uh, get rid of or destroy and then this idea of clean fuel meaning uh, like clean nutrition and really like why would we be needing to burn clean fuel of course (laughs) you are you know you want to fuel to support the exercise and and overall like holistic well-being of you being a human first, as opposed to just an athlete, but as a high performance athlete, you know, that we're often working with or any athlete of that, um, nature, you know, you're, you're working with people who use their bodies as their vehicles for success Mm -hmm. for athletic performance. And so I think about mixed messaging like that and, um, such a subtle way that could be perceived in so many different ways, but I, I just, overall feel like we need to be a lot more careful about the language that we're using and because it contributes so significantly to the culture that we participate in. Uh, So good. I couldn't agree more, Kendra. I mean, it's like at surface level, a lot of these ways we describe food may feel like encouraging at first, like maybe Mm. we're doing the right thing. But if we look at the underlying or implicit messages that are there, they're actually quite um, damaging. I mean, one of the ones that drives me the most crazy is like, this is a guilt-free food. Or, and you see this on a lot of like dessert options. You see this in the grocery store on labels. Um, People are advertising their, Mm -hmm. their, their um, food products with this. It's like, you can have this guilt free. And at first, yeah, it's like, oh, sweet. You know, I'd love to eat that and not feel like I'm doing damage to my body. But the underlying message or the hidden message behind that is that like, there's a reason to feel guilty, right? If there is a polarization of foods, that there are good foods and bad foods and, Mm -hmm. Um, it removes our, yeah, that's another one. Yes. Like it takes away the neutrality and rather than seeing foods as like information and like, you know, I, I can choose this food or this food and how my body reacts as information. It becomes this like test every time we eat. But I I think that's so fasting, the burn clean fuel. So what are some examples of how you shift that language? Like, how do you communicate the idea and concept of fueling to your athletes now? Mm. Yeah, I like to, you know, I think it can be difficult to grasp onto immediately. And and this is my personal um, 
use of it and it might change for for other people in terms of how I approach that conversation but um in general I think we all need to create relationships with food like mm-hmm. to personify our relationship with it and when I look back on my own experience in in university I completely neglected the relationship with food I didn't really see it as such of course this is coming from a more educated standpoint now but in you know, any type of relationship takes work and we have to be willing to commit to a relationship with fueling in order to understand, to be able to get the information that you're just, that you're describing to get, um, you know, responses from our bodies and to become aware of those things. So, um, I like what you say, like using food as information is, is great and, um, not making sure that, you know, especially in context of, freshmen or first year university student athletes, wherever, wherever that may be early age, um, like young women, young girls, um, you know, showing them, you know, positive inferences of being like, yeah, you know, like, did you know that protein is X, Y, Z, and it can really help fuel this. And it's super important to make sure that we're getting enough carbohydrates. So, you know, this is what those things look like, but giving them positive examples of it and not also using that you know in language that restricts other foods i still think it's one example i'm probably getting on a tangent here that drives me nuts is like we just had easter and Mm -hmm. there's all these chocolates coming out so there's so much mixed messaging on like you know uh needing to get back to the gym after easter weekend and all Mm -hmm. the cadbury eggs or whatnot that you've eaten and Mm -hmm. um and i hate seeing this idea that those types of delicious and enjoyable, like satisfying, satiating foods are being pulled away or, um, demonstrated as negative in some way at an early age when brains are still developing. And those messages that those messages are, are even more, um, yeah. Influential, I'd say like in those early days. Yeah. It's like, we're sending this idea that this is something that has to be paid for or there's a debt that's incurred rather than just like enjoying it. And I'm such a huge believer that once you have that permission and you know, you're allowed to eat, it totally changes how you eat the food. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. you don't, I believe very much in our body's ability to self-regulate. And if we actually slow down and we hear what our body says about the food and we listen to our energy response, like nobody feels good when Mm -hmm. you eat a whole bag of Cadbury eggs, right? Like nobody feels good, but if you do it and like you can actually taste it and you know, it's okay to eat it, like it changes the way you eat it and you don't ever get to that point. Or mm-hmm. if you do, you just know more information for next time, right? Like if you can stay neutral, it can change how you experience it next time. And it completely totally. like labeling it as bad or something that has to be paid for it completely negates the fact that it's connection, it's mm-hmm. tradition, it's experience with other humans. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I could go off on a tangent <laughs> there yeah. too, obviously. Yeah. So when you hear a lot of these I'm sure, I mean, I get this all the time. People come in and they're like, oh, you know, gluten's bad for me. Or, you know, I, I try to eat clean. That's a Mm -hmm. big one right now. Mm -hmm. How do you help them redirect that language? Like, do you have any like quick tips that can help people start changing the way we speak around food? Mm. Um, I think first of all, and this is probably with a counseling lens on though, I, I try and approach it because my, my immediate response is sort of like, Ugh, why, why are they using, you know, this mm-hmm. language? And like, I want to help them improve on that. But I think it's important also to remember that 
if I'm meeting somebody for the first time, for example, and they're saying like, yeah, I'm, I have X, Y, Z, I'm, I, I try and just be really curious about it and come from a place of genuine mm. curiosity to understand like what is their current relationship and understanding of, of food and, and their body. Because for me to come in and try and change that right away, there's also going to be rigidity likely mm-hmm. there. And while I do feel that I have, you know, some expertise in, in understanding it and certainly working with an eating, eating disorder or disordered eating lens, I'm also not the expert of their life. Right. And, and so there has to be a willingness to come in with an open mind from my side of that too, uh, to not like add criticism to criticism essentially. Mm. And, um, to make sure that there still is, I, I hope that I'm offering people and, um, a conversation that can help them further explore their understandings as opposed mm-hmm. to feel attacked by them. Um, that answers your question. I'm not no, sure. It's so good. Well, you're, you're touching on how you kind of present this curiosity, which most of us don't have about food. Right, like right. most of us that have never spent time exploring it, just kind of accept the current relationship or status mm. with food as normal. And so what I love about what you're saying is like, get curious. Mm-hmm. You know, if you say these things about food, instead of accepting them as a hundred percent truth, like even the burn clean fuel, right? Like just let's get curious about where that comes from totally. and what that actually means and how that shows up in your actions. I mean, I'm thinking yeah. of just the people listening and that's something any of us can do. We can look at how we speak about food throughout the day and get curious. Where does that come from? What mm. message is that sending? And that's a big one. I think is like, what message is this sending to the future generations? Totally. Um, because, totally. and I think that's a good like doorway to look at some of the ways we interact with food. Yeah. Look at our own stuff. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. I think like staying and I probably should have expanded to like staying curious about it there. Like you've said, the messaging and whatnot becomes so ingrained that often we don't think about, oh, where did this come from? Or where does this influence? Mm-hmm. How did I create this relationship? So ask it for me, asking questions about, you know, like culturally, like what, what foods did you enjoy eating up or what was your family's relationship? Like relationship with food, what did dinner time look like, et cetera. Um, what's it like now that you're in university, for example, or, or wherever that is and looking to, to expand on, um, like if I can, if I can get a better understanding of what their goals are, what their intentions, what their intrinsic belief systems are, and then make a connection to their relationship with food or how they perceive it. Often those two things don't align, but by getting to it through curiosity and questions that are highlighting what's truly important to them, sometimes it's easier to then start to make changes when they themselves come to the realization of like, oh, these two things actually quite contradict themselves. But there just hasn't been attention brought to it. So going back to even that body comp example, like myself, why would I think about it? And for mm-hmm. them, it's just a matter of continuing that conversation and, and or sorry, providing that conversation in the first part and then continuing it so that they mm-hmm. can develop a healthier with some guidance, of course, um, relationships with it. I love that because I think you're right. Like once you present the conversation and get curious, it's a window into mm-hmm. so many things, our past, our connection with family, how we grew up. And then I, I don't know if you see this, but I really think that a lot of the way we interact with food is a metaphor for like how we interact with life. 
there's a great book by Janine Roth. Have you read it? The um, Women, Food, and God. Have you read this one? I've heard it. I haven't actually read that one. It's um, so good. But anyways, mm. like she touches a lot on that where she talks about how if we actually look at our relationship with food, there's so much insight we can gain, not just in how we like take care of our body, but also like how we build relationships, how we interact mm. with other people. And yeah, I think it's, it's such a great conversation to start with people and mm -hmm. so much and, and it continues it does continue I mean to this day I'll like watch how I how I'm working towards a goal even a fitness goal you know and how I approach that and I'm like that's so funny like I did something very similar in how I was like being a mom to my boys oh, it's yeah. almost like I bring the same characteristics interesting right? yeah so yeah obviously this is a conversation that like I said it's ongoing like I think we have it early on. If, if we can have it early on, there's so much potential. And I love that you're doing this for women and essentially giving other women, which you didn't get right. Which mm. you were missing. That's so good. It's so beautiful, Kendra. Well, now you are just a wealth of information. So <laughs> if folks wanted to connect with you, how could they connect with you? Yeah. Um, you can find me on Instagram at at strides counseling we're in canada here so there's two l's on the uh on the counseling so at strides counseling or stridescounseling.com well i will make sure all the links are in the show notes so if folks do want to connect with you now just to wrap it up for those that are listening if you were to have them start this conversation i'm totally going to put you on the spot what would be a good question that they could ask themselves to start this conversation about how they speak about fuel and the language they use about fueling? I might even go back to, to origins, just looking at like, what were my first, what's the first messages that I recall receiving about food? Where did my initial understandings of food come from and how have they evolved over time? Where were they at then compared to now just having a a recognition of that starting point. And then, yeah, like it's, sometimes when people get super restrictive into things, a question that I like to ask is like, when you, you know, when you were 10 years old, where was your favorite restaurant to go mm. or where was, where was something that you enjoyed? And not to suggest that everybody necessarily has a bad relationship with food either. Like mm -hmm. maybe it's just a check-in point for curiosity and uh, appreciation. And that's equally as important and worth you know, highlighting as well, but it's so good. It's like, what's your food origin story? Like talk yeah, about yeah. a great journal reflection. Well, Kendra, thank you so much for being here today. I know um, you're doing wonderful things and you're just getting started, but I appreciate your time so much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Jess. Gosh, I'm so glad you joined me today. If today encouraged you, would you take a minute and encourage me by leaving a review for the show? I read every single one of these reviews and your words, they mean so much to me. This podcast is here to support you weekly, but it only scratches the surface. For more info on how you can become an empowered eater, grab my free workshop on how to become confident in your body without obsessing over food at JessBrownRD.com. Don't forget to join me right here next Monday where I cannot wait to fuel your awesome. Cheers, my sweet friend, and happy eating.